Philippians 1, verse number 19. We're going to read down through verse 21. So verse number 19, if you're new or you, have, you weren't here two weeks ago, we'll explain a bit of what's happening in this text. We're just going to pick it up midstream and read the text. Verse 19 says this, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This passage, these three short verses, are honestly challenging. Uh, it's, a, it's a rare believer that can come to this text and grapple with it in a serious way and walk away from it feeling as though he or she has lived up to what Paul has said in these words. And you get such a beautiful window into the heart of Paul here in these three verses that I hope will be as challenging to you as they've been to me over the past couple of weeks as I've studied this. And I want you to just to see this kind of piece by piece. And, and first, I want you to see what I'm calling Paul's confidence. Paul says in verse number 19, he says, I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He says, I know that this is going to turn to my salvation. Okay, so what's this? This is what we talked about two weeks ago. Verses 12 through 18 spell this out clearly. This was that Paul was in prison. Paul was in bonds. Paul has some circumstances that have come his way that he was not anticipating, and he is now locked up for Jesus instead of planting churches, and he says this has actually turned out to the furtherance of the gospel, that the gospel is being furthered because of this. People are actually more bold because of this to preach Jesus Christ. There's actually people that are preaching Jesus with improper motives, but the Lord's taking that, and he's using that to further the gospel and to further the cause of Christ. He says, all of this, these negative circumstances that are right now in my life that an outsider would look at and would naturally think that this should befuddle me, that this should, you know, this should kill me, this should, this should ruin me, that these circumstances, actually the Lord is performing alchemy. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, that alchemy was the medieval thought that you could somehow through a chemical process turn base metals like lead into gold. And Paul is saying that God is taking the lead of this, these circumstances and he's turning it into gold for other people and the gospel's being furthered and this is actually working out for their benefit. And Paul says, I know that this ordeal that I'm in right now, this is actually going to turn to my salvation. So how can Paul have such confidence that this is actually going to work out for his betterment somehow? And some people would say, well, Paul was just like psychotically optimistic. Like the man, he just always had a smile on his face and it was, it was always roses. It was always something that was just good that was happening. And you know that's not the case if you read the life of Paul at all. Paul said in, in 2 Corinthians that there was something that came his way in Asia. And he said, I don't want you to be ignorant of the trouble which came to us in Asia. He says, we were pressed out of measure. We were above strength in so much that we despaired even of life. Paul says, this was such a terrible experience, and my spirit reached such a low ebb that I despaired even of my life. So this man is, is prone to find himself in some situations that, that really weigh on his heart and really hurt him in some internal and some emotional ways. So how can he here in this moment have such confidence that I know this is going to turn out to my salvation, 
even though it seems like it would be the opposite. And I think he gives us a, a threefold reason in verse 19 that he gives us this template of sorts for why he's so confident that this is, everything's going to be all right. This is going to be okay. And first he starts with the precepts of the Lord. So Paul says, I know that this shall turn out to my salvation. And what Paul is doing here is he is quoting Job 13. Now you don't see it necessarily when you read it in English because you have to actually go back to the Greek. But if you were to read Job in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, and then to read how Paul originally wrote this, Paul is doing a direct quote of Job here. And Job said in Job 13, these are Job's words, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I will maintain mine own ways before him. And here's the quote, he shall also be my salvation. So Job was accused of being cursed, basically, that his friends told him, Job, you must have done something wrong in your life. This is why God is allowing these negative circumstances to come to your life. And Job said, no. He said, my heart is clean. My hands are clean. And I know that I will one day be vindicated. This is actually going to work for my salvation. You'll find I can trust God. God's in control and he'll vindicate me. And Paul a man with a deep understanding of the Old Testament scriptures is borrowing from the words of Job and he's building on what Job had said and he's, he's building on the Old Testament principle that God delivers the righteous. And Paul is saying, look, I can quote that man because what he knew, I know. I know that what he said is true. I can trust him even if he slays me. I can know that this is gonna work for my salvation. And there's, there's a great deal of debate about what this salvation actually means. Is Paul saying that this is going to work out for my ultimate eternal salvation, that I will get to go be with Jesus? Is Paul saying that this will work out for my salvation on earth? I will be released from prison and everything will be honky-dory. What is Paul saying here? Honestly, I think that Paul's saying both. What he's saying is, I know that this is temporary. I know that whatever is happening to me right now, this is actually going to work out for good, that this is not going to last I'm going to be delivered from this. I, w I may be exonerated at my trial. I may be released from prison. I may be executed and go to be to Jesus with one, one day. But regardless of whatever it is, this is temporary. I have confidence, just like Job did, that this is actually going to work out for my salvation. And Paul's a man here in this passage who takes great stock in the word of God. He anchors his heart to it and he says, just as Job knew that, I'm going to take that precept to the bank, and I'm going to tell you that this is going to work for my salvation. And can I encourage you with this? You may be going through a very difficult time right now. I don't know what this week has been like for you. I don't know what this month has been like for you. I don't know if it's been a rough road lately. But I can tell you that if you turn to the Word of God, there is, there's help there. It is a light unto our path. It is a lamp unto our feet. It is a mirror for our correction. It is wisdom for our decision making. It's there to help you if you're going through something. Don't let it push you away from the word. Don't let it push you away from church. Let it draw you into it and turn to it and find that you can have confidence there from principles that you find in the word of God. I, I had a, a text message conversation with someone this week. They may be in the room. I'm not even sure if they're here or not, but someone who's pretty new to our church, recently saved, uh, recently baptized, and, and we were texting about just some things that were going on in their life. And uh, it was kind of a group conversation, and, and she said this, and I'll, I'll quote exactly what she said. She said, the word helps me more than I ever imagined it would. I feel blessed no matter how hard things get. And that was, that was a modern-day conversation this week with somebody that said really exactly what Paul said. 
I can bank on that precept. I know, I have confidence that this is going to turn to my salvation. But his confidence goes beyond that. It also is anchored to the prayers of the saints. He says, verse 19, I know this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer. Paul had an unmistakable feeling of dependence upon the prayers of the saints in Philippi, and he put a premium on those prayers on behalf of those people for himself, and those prayers are bolstering his confidence to be able to know that this is going to be okay, that God is going to sort this out, and he can trust the Lord there. And it's, it's such a thought for us because in our own modern American pride, we oftentimes can have this notion that I'm autonomous and I should be self-sufficient and for me to solicit the prayers of someone else, for me to have a moment of weakness and humility to say, I'm going through something, I'm struggling, I could use your prayers. Many times our pride drives us away from that. And we find ourselves telling, telling our own hearts and our own minds, there's something wrong with me if I need someone else to pray for me. There's something, I should be able to figure this out. I should be able to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I should be able to get through this. I should be spiritually sufficient to be able to, to plow through this on my own. But here's Paul, a man who's very spiritually mature, who says, look, I love the prayers that you're giving to me. Th these are helping me. I'm dependent upon these of sorts. So learn from this lesson and don't shy away from asking someone else to pray for you. This is why, as a, as a church family, we try to invite and to welcome prayers for each other so often and so frequently. This is why in the back of our connection card that you fill out, put in the offering plate every week, there's a, there's a prayer request section there. We take those prayer requests seriously. They get submitted to the pastoral staff on Monday, and we pray through those. We want to partner with you in prayer. I'll be the first to tell you, as a pastor here at the church, I covet your prayers. I need your prayers. I need your prayers for wisdom. I need your prayers for protection physically and spiritually on my life, on my family's life, on the life of our church family. I need your prayers that I would abound in love. I could go on and on and on that I need that, and so do you. That, that's scriptural. James tells us that we should confess our faults one to another and pray one for another that we may be healed. Why would we do that? Why would we tell each other, this is what I'm going through, this is the struggle, this is what's happening in my marriage or with my kids, or the, here's what's happening in my life or the job, would you pray for me? Well, he continues, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. He says, prayer works. He said, I don't feel like I'm a righteous man. Well, he continues the thought. Eli Elias, Elijah, he was a man subject to light passions as we are. Elijah was a normal dude. Had problems, had difficulties. He was hungry, he was thirsty, he was normal. But he prayed that it wouldn't rain, and for three and a half years it didn't rain. Then he prayed that it would rain, and then it did rain. What's James saying? James is saying, look, pray for each other. Know that prayer works, and you don't have to be some spiritual giant to do this. Elijah was a normal guy, and he prayed, and it worked, so it can work for you. And Paul is saying here, look, I take great confidence and my heart is helped, and I can proclaim that I know this is going to work out because of your prayers. And perhaps even this morning, a simple step for application for you from the sermon would just be to take inventory of your own life and say, you know what, Lord? I need a genuine love for other people so that I can pray for them better. I need to understand their needs, and I want to be a prayer partner with them. So I know that this is something that you should solicit from other people. This is something you should give to other people. And not be completely self-centered in your prayers. Not just all about me, mine, help me, help me, bless me, bless me. But it should turn to other people. 
your spouse and your kids and your family and your church family and your unsaved coworkers and neighbors, and we could go on and on and on. And Paul said, you're praying for me. I know, part of the reason I know this is gonna be all right, part of the reason I know this is temporary, yes, because of the word of God, and I can quote Job on this, but also because of your prayers. This is not, this is not our modern day, everything's gonna be all right. If you've been through a tough time, you've heard that. Someone just looked at you and said, you know what, everything's gonna be all right. And you know what, it seems vague and it seems flimsy, does it not? When someone just gives you those words. Paul is saying those words, but he's saying them and they're underpinned with substantial spiritual realities. He said, I know everything's gonna be all right, but I know this because I know the word of God. I know everything's gonna be all right, but I know this because you're praying for me. And then he gives a, a third reason. He says, I know this because of the provision of the spirit. The end of verse number 19. I know this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, on one hand, you have the spirit of Christ in our life is static. If you're a believer, the Bible tells you that you are indwelt with the spirit of God. That's static. It tells you the Spirit of God seals you until the day of redemption. That's static. But on the other hand, the working of the Spirit of God in your life is, is extremely dynamic. You can quench the Spirit of God. You can be filled with the Spirit of God or not filled with the Spirit of God. And Paul is saying here that there are spiritual resources being made available to him through the Spirit of God. This is beyond just what I know. This is beyond just your prayers for me that I know that there's, there's something happening inside of me that is beyond me, that is supernatural, that the Spirit is working in my life and there are resources being supplied and made available to me that's helping me have a confidence that God's in control, that I can trust Him, that this situation isn't entirely gloom and doom and all negative and all a rainy parade, that this actually, I can step back and say, you know what? I have confidence in this, and I can know that it's going to be all right because of what the Spirit is doing in my life. But Paul goes beyond this. Verse 19 ends with a comma, and he continues the thought into verse number 20, and he gives us not just his confidence, but he gives us his courage. He says in verse number 20, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Paul is utterly fearless here. He says, my expectation and my hope is that I will not be ashamed. I will have boldness, just like always, even right now, Jesus will be magnified. I don't know if that's by life or by death, all I care about is Jesus being lifted up. You can execute me or exonerate me. Either way, it doesn't matter. I want Jesus to loom large. I want Jesus to be magnified. I want boldness that I can proclaim him, that I'll stand before Emperor Nero, and I won't chicken out, and I won't fold, and I won't recant my testimony, but I will stand tall and bold and know that Jesus Christ is my Lord, that I have confidence in the gospel of Jesus, and I want to keep on keeping on. I want to continue to share him over and over. I want courage to do this. Right now, I'm in prison. I'm surrounded by some really scary Praetorian guard. I'm going to have to go stand trial again. This is what's happening in my life, but my greatest desire is that I will remain steadfast, that I will remain sure that regardless of the circumstances that I face, I'm not going to allow this persecution to silence me or to make me timid. I'm going to stand bold and declare Jesus good times, bad times, doesn't matter. I want to magnify Jesus. 
This is what Paul is saying, which is such a challenge. We, I mean, we get so, we chicken out over the craziest of things in witnessing for Jesus. I look at this and I say, you know what? This man is about to be executed potentially for his faith. And he says, I'm going to stand tall and bold and let Jesus be magnified. And I think that someone may possibly potentially think ill of me if I talk about Jesus. So I don't want to share him. You ever been there? Let's be honest. Is it a problem for you? If it's not, you know, then, then why do you struggle to share the gospel with your neighbors or your coworkers or whoever it is around you? Paul says, I want to be bold. I want to bring Jesus closer to people's consciences so that they can see him and all of his glory and all of his grace. And by life or death, it doesn't matter. I just want to reflect Jesus. There's a, there's a logo of an old missionary organization. And I love the logo. It has on one side this, this ox with a plow. And on the other side, it has an altar. And underneath those two pictures side by side, it has the words ready for either. And this is what Paul is saying. Let me out and I'll put my hand to the plow and I'll go back to working for Jesus and planting churches and fine. Put me on the altar and sacrifice me, martyr me. I don't care. I'm ready for either. I just want Jesus to be magnified. That is a glimpse of spiritual maturity. He is saying this is what matters to me. I want Christ to be lifted up. And when you take 19 and 20 and you push them together, you come away with this unmistakable feeling that what's happening in Paul's life is actually doing something inside of him. It's working on his heart. It's working on his courage. It's working on his emotions. And you find this little phrase in the beginning of verse 19. I want to draw your attention back to it. He says, I know that this shall turn to my salvation. Paul does not say that this is going to work out in spite of my circumstances. Paul says, this is going to work out and this is going to be okay because of my circumstances. And there's a difference. Paul is not, let me relegate my circumstances to the side and it'll all be all right. We can just forget about that. Paul says, no, I embrace these circumstances. I embrace the trial. And this is actually going to work out because of this. What Paul is saying here really is that I know that God is, is turning lead to gold in other people's lives and the gospel's going forward. I know that God's turning lead to gold and that people are sharing Jesus out of impure motives, but he's still using that to further the gospel. But I know that God is turning this lead into gold. I know that he's using these circumstances in my life and he's changing me. He's molding me into the image of Jesus. He's ripening me. He's doing something inside of me because of these circumstances. This is actually something that I need this. This is maturing me. Now, I look at that and I think, I love that that happened to Paul, that here he's, he's in this circumstance that is less than ideal, but he's not cast down. He's not overthrown. He's not jumping ship. He's, he's being turned into gold because of this. He's being ripened because of this. So I love that this is happening to him. I've seen this happen to other Christians, but I've also seen Christians who go through a trial or a test or a circumstance that they wouldn't have chosen for themselves, and it doesn't accomplish that. Ever seen that? A Christian goes through something that would be maybe a dark passage, and instead of being warned and sweetened, they're made cold and they're soured. So how is it that Paul, 
This can be worked in his own heart for his own good, and he can be warmed and sweetened and changed for the better, but other people go through similar circumstances, and they're not. What's, what's the key here? How could I be like Paul? And I think he answers it in verse number 21. Here's how this happens. It all depends on your definition of life. And Paul says in verse number 21, he gives us a coffee mug verse. This verse has been slapped on coffee mugs and, and cards and pictures and on people's walls all over the place. This is one of the verses from Philippians that people just latched hold onto. And I love that they have because it's a great verse. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we'll cover to die is gain next week, but I want to bite off that phrase. For me to live is Christ. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying, here's my cause. Paul's saying, here is my definition of life that allows me to face anything. This is what makes life life for me. This is my bottom line. If I have this, I'm living regardless of what else is happening around me or being taken from me. Here's my definition of life. For me to live is Christ. Now, Paul would have been surrounded by people who would have had different definitions of life. In the first century, there were, there were lots of philosophies that were propagated on how you could define life and, and what should drive and motivate your life. The Epicureans had an approach that was basically live life for pleasure. Just work a job, show up, get some money, but do that so that you can go have fun, have pleasure, have recreation, you know, YOLO. You only live once, so live it up, have a good time. That was their approach. He would have been surrounded by some Stoics who would have said my definition of life is that I want to be strong, I want to be tough, I want to be in control. No matter what life throws at me, I don't want to sweat. I don't want it to appear as if this is bothering me or this is affecting me. I just, I just want to be a rock. He would have been surrounded by Judaizers. He would have said, for me to live is to be moral. I want to be better than someone else. I want my good to outweigh their good. I want to make sure that I'm abiding by, by this and this and this and this. So there, there are a lot of philosophies, so to speak, in that day on how you could define life. For us, as Americans, most of us are not that coherent. Most Americans adopt a philosophy that for me to live is my family or my friends, or my career, or status, or money, or whatever it may be. And here's what happens. Tragedies and troubles and trials, they come our way, and they threaten to take away what makes life worth living for us. And unless you change your bottom line, you collapse. You fold. If there's something that for you to live is blank and is outside of Christ, then it tells you that dying cannot be gain. If for you to live is wealth, dying is not gain. If for you to live is relationship with your spouse or your children, and I love your relationship with your spouse and your children, but if that is what drives you and is the center and circumference of your life, then dying is not gain. If for you to live is your career or your status or going up that ladder or whatever it may be. If, it's, if you put anything other than Christ in that blank, then you cannot complete the verse and you cannot to say, say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And, and many times the Lord will providentially allow circumstances into your life that do shake you and they do rattle you. And many times it's meant to speak to this idea that for you to live is not Christ and it should be. 
that what has motivated you and driven you and has made you feel complete or successful or that life is all good and everything is, is hunky-dory, then if, if that's other than Christ, then that circumstance is going to come into your life. It's going to take away what drives you and you are going to collapse. And your choice is I convert what drives my life and my de- definition of life or I collapse one or the other. Paul was a church planner and his church planning career is toast. He's locked up in prison. But that's not what life was all about for him. Paul's physical well-being is threatened at this point in time, and he's going through some tough stuff physically. But that's not what made life life for him. His life was in Jesus. So this tells you, if you've gone through the last month or year or two years or whatever it is, and you feel like your career is collapsing, and it feels like you're crumbling on the inside, the problem is not in your circumstances. The problem is in the way that you have defined what makes life life for you. If your relationships or your marriage are in a tailspin and it seems as though your life is worthless because of these relationships that haven't gone the way that you anticipated they would, the problem is not in those circumstances. The problem is in the way that you have designed or defined life. If your kids are disappointing you, if they don't choose you as often as you think they should, if they don't regard you as highly as you think that they ought, and that is threatening to ruin you at the core, then there's a problem with how you've defined life. If your health is failing and you're sour and you're angry and you're raising your fist and saying, God, why me? Or someone else that you know and love, their health is failing and you're raising your fist and saying, God, why them? There's a problem with how you've defined your life. And Paul gives us, and this is challenging. I'll be the first to tell you. This is deeply challenging to me. And it probably is to you as well. But Paul says, for me, to live is Jesus. And if spouse or kids or career or money or anything else defines you, then you're always threatened that, that life, you, you'll never get to this point. You'll never get to a confidence that it's, it's all going to be okay. I can step back. I can relax. I can trust in God. It's all going to be okay. The only way you get there is with the definition that for me to live is Christ. It's the only way. And most of us would agree that if we, even with our family, if we were to invest in our relationships with our, with our spouse or with our children, that that would even be better than money or status or career or something like that. But, e- but even those relationships that you should put a premium on and that you should pursue and that you should work at, even those relationships, that can't be your bottom line. Because one day, I hesitate to say it, but I'm, it's the truth. One day, they will be in a casket. Say, Pastor, that's morbid. It's the truth. One day, they will be there, and if that's what life is for you, you're done. You'll fold. It will be the end of you. And Paul gives us the solution. And I understand there's going to be hurt when those days come, and there's, I understand the grieving. I get that. I'm not saying it to the side. Many of you have been through loss, and so I'm not minimizing that. But that can't be the center and the circumference of your life. That can't be what makes you you. That can't be what everything is all about. Paul says, Christ is what makes life life for me. And because of that, I can tell you, 
execute me or exonerate me. I don't care. I just want him to be lifted up and dying is gain for me. This man gets to this point with a driving desire of Jesus. And I would challenge you to read this verse and say for me to live and take out Christ and put a blank there. What is it that is your life? What is it that defines you? What is it that motivates you? What is it that drives you? What would someone who knows you well say for me to live is what? If it's outside of Jesus, you're on a collision course for some real hurt because that will eventually be taken away. Augustine's probably said this best. He was a man who lived a crazy, wild life of, of sin and immorality and pleasure. And he came to faith in Jesus Christ and he said, Oh God, thou hast made us for thyself and our souls are restless until they find their rest in thee. And that goes beyond just knowing him as your savior and knowing that you have heaven. That goes to, to your day-to-day -day living to find your rest and your completion there. There's a prayer that circled around the church at large for centuries. I think it was written back in the fifth or sixth century and it's been kind of adapted and changed and tweaked over the years. But I want to read you this prayer. I'm, I'm attempting in my own life to memorize this because I think it encapsulates what Paul is saying. And here's, here's the prayer. Christ in me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ with me. Christ above me. Christ beneath me. Christ on my right. Christ on my left. Christ when I sit. Christ when I rise. Christ in my marriage. Christ in my home. Christ in my work. Christ in my rest. Christ when I preach, Christ when I pray, Christ over self, Christ under nothing. Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me, Christ in every mouth that speaks of me, Christ in every mind that thinks of me, his strength in my arms, his service on my hands, his tears in my eyes, his words on my lips, his anointing on my head, his humility in my all, his glory as my aim, Christ in me. That's what Paul's saying. This, this is my center and my circumference. This is what makes life life for me. So I think that this sermon is incomplete unless we answer this question. Pastor, how do I get there? How do I get to that place? Pastor, I've, I'm struggling to show up to church once a week. How can I make Jesus my all in the center and circumference of my life? Pastor, if you only knew what I, what I did yesterday... If you knew that the sin that I struggled with this week, yesterday, I feel a million miles from that, that Christ would be in everything and through everything and he would be my all and he would be my life. So how do I get there? I'll tell you how you get there. First, and let me start with this. It sounds overly simple, but you, you have to start here. First, you have to know Jesus, okay? So you have to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior first and to have a relationship with him. So that, that's definitely the beginning point. A non-Christian is not going to get there where Christ is everything. That makes sense. So if you've never believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for your sins, that you've come to a place where you recognize, I can't save myself. My good will not outweigh my bad. I cannot do this myself. I need to put my faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone that he did this for me. Then that's, that's step number one. Step number two, you have to understand this. If you will turn and take one step to Jesus, he will take every other step to, to you. You do not have to walk a mile to Jesus to make this happen. This can happen today. I don't care what you did yesterday or last week or this month or how this year has gone spiritually for you despite your New Year's resolutions. I don't care what that's looked like. You can get there today. 
If you will recognize that this is not me and I want it to be, so I repent and I say, Lord, I'm sorry. I I need to make you Lord of my life. Sit on the throne of my heart. I turn to you and I want you. He will take every other step to you. So know that this is something that that is tangible for you today. So, okay, pastor, how would this be tangible for me today? I think Paul answers the questions in Galatians 2. Paul says in Galatians 2, verse 20, the life that I now live in the flesh, I I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What's Paul saying? He loved me. He gave himself for me. I want to do the same. And you get this. If you've ever been given a Christmas present, but you didn't have a present to give back to the person who was providing you with a gift, you, you get this feeling, right? They spent time, thought, money, energy, whatever on a gift, and they give it to you, and you're thankful for the gift, but you're thinking, I'm an utter loser. I don't have anything to give back to them. You want to reciprocate it, do you not? And Paul says, I look at Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me, so how can I not want to love him and give myself for him? This is what Jesus says himself in John 17, verse 19. He's praying in the garden, and he says, and for their sakes I I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I set myself apart so that they can be set apart. I am living for them. If you understand the cross... And this is why I loved last weekend. We spent all of Good Friday thinking about praying, singing, worshiping, preaching on the cross, that Jesus did this and he did this for us. Then we came Sunday and we spent all day thinking about praying, worshiping, speaking on the resurrection that Jesus Christ rose for us. If you get the gospel, you get that Jesus did this for you, that he was set apart so that you could be set apart, that he loved you and that he gave himself for you. So now it's only natural to say, you lived for me, you gave yourself for me, you loved me, I want to live for you. I want to serve you. I want to give myself for you. And the way you get there, it sounds overly simplistic, but it's this simple. You stay right there on the gospel. And you think about that, 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 and you ponder that, and you meditate that, and you chew on that, and you, and you live in that, and you thank the Lord for what he's done. And when you sing, you don't just go through the motions in church, but you think about what I'm singing, that he gave himself for me. And I promise you, as you begin to let that affect your mind and your heart, that cannot help but change you. You can't stare at the gospel for very long and understand what he did for me and not want to do something for him. And Paul understands the life that he lives in the flesh. He's living by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for him, for you, for me. And I want you, personally, I'll I'll tell you the truth. This is, oh my word, this is a challenge to me. You say, Pastor, isn't your life supposed to be about Jesus? Yes, it is. But this is a challenge for me. I I trust it's a challenge for you to look at this and say, man, I I want confidence in God. I want courage for Jesus. I want boldness. How do I get there? It's how you define your life. It's, It's, you have to answer the question, yes or no. There's no middle ground. Is Christ the center and circumference of my life? Yes or no? And if the answer is yes, then you have a, you have a definition of life 
that can withstand anything. As you can be locked in prison, threatening martyrdom, it doesn't matter. You, you can face anything, no matter what the circumstances. And you can step back and say, you know what? The Lord's using this in my life. He's turning me into gold because you can honestly say, for me to live is Christ. And I hope that you are there or that you will get there even here today.